Provoke podcast is brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialists, Marketeers. Support for this podcast comes from Notified, the integrated, intelligent and easy-to-use PR software. Get a free demo today at Notified.com. Welcome to Combining Social and Media Strategy. This is a series that explores the new media ecosystem. Provoke Media is doing this series in partnership with Newswhip. I'm Arthi Shaw, Executive Editor for Provoke Media and host for this series. So on this episode, we're going to explore journalism and misinformation, uh, where those things intersect and what journalism looks like right now um, in uh, both across the country, um, around sources, around misinformation and overall sort of what the quality of journalism and how that impacts um, misinformation. So on today's show, we have um, Newswhip CEO, Paul Quigley, who is a longtime friend of Provoke Media. And those of you who have been following the series know him well. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks, Marty. And as our special guest on today's show, we have Gabriel Stricker, who is CCO of the Emerson Collective. Welcome, Gabriel. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And if anyone who's, who's followed to follow Provoke Media probably know you very well um, also because Gabriel has spoken at many of our events, but every time you speak, every time we speak, you're, you're wearing a different hat. Um, so do, do you want to kind of tell people a little bit about where, where you've been um, over the last few years and then also what, you know, a bit about the Emerson Collective um, and also, also your work with the Center for Investigative Reporting because I think you're wearing both of those hats um, in your capacity today. Sure. Yeah. I mean, over the years, I have uh, originally I started work uh, on political campaigns, but in most recent years, uh, I've spent my time working in communications and public policy uh, in the technology world, um, Google um, and Twitter and and a handful of other places. Um, But right now, um, as the chief communications officer at Emerson Collective, I really am here advancing a lot of our work. Um, Emerson focuses in a variety of areas, including uh, immigration, um, health, climate, um, but also certainly media and journalism. And Emerson's approach to media and journalism really is to invest in uh, storytelling um, and journalism, conventional journalism, um, both national uh, for-profit and nonprofit journalism that's really just trying to um, spark action and contribute to a more just and, and equitable society. So um, in addition, as you were alluding to, I've sat on the board of the Center for Investigative Reporting, um, which is responsible for Reveal. Um, some folks may, may listen to, um, and it is the uh, nation's oldest nonprofit journalism entity and um, just does remarkable, remarkable work. Uh, so that's, that is the nutshell on me. Right. And, you know, I, I guess it's worth, it's worth mot- noting that, you know, as far as, um, as far as media entities, I mean, Emerson Collective, you all are, is it, is it, are you the majority owner of the Atlantic? Yes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and, and talking about quality journalism, um, that, that's pretty, pretty high up there. Um, it's broken some pretty significant stories, especially um, as we were dealing with our lo- last political cycle. Um, 
So, you know, let's, I guess a good place to start here then would be to, um, you know, I think I think we covered on the series quite often. You know, the, the the distinction between misinformation and disinformation, and you know, I mean, I think in the context of how we'll talk about it here is, you know, it's it's about um, it's about intent, right? I mean, so so misinformation is is information that people get wrong. Um, they're not necessarily maliciously, just you know, people are misinformed or you know, they they, they overlooked a fact or something like that, um, but. You know, disinformation, of course, is, is is malicious. Now we're talking about bots, or we're talking about you know, you know, bad actors um, that are propagating um, information. But but my question for for both of you is, I mean, is the impact any different? I mean, whether 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 the intent is malicious or not, um, I mean, I would think that the, it lands the same and it gets the same end result in most cases. I I would agree with that. I think you might start. Um, with a deliberate disinformation campaign um, in order to get people to be misinformed. And then from there, all roads lead to the same place. I, I think a, a really critical distinction though around and where, where the intent matters is I, I think part of our narrative of uh, dis, around disinformation has been, oh, you have these actors who actually want us to believe this wrong fact or something. Um, but, but actually, I think if you really look at the history of disinformation, um, what you see is, is the goal isn't necessarily to have someone believe something that isn't true. A lot of the times, it's just the goal is to have them question, have people question, right. frankly, everything. Right. Um, and that is a, a world in which everyone is questioning even the most basic facts and having a lack of belief in fundamental truths is a is a really uh, a daunting and vulnerable place for for any any free society. Right. That's I, yeah. I'd I'd agree with that, Gavin. You know what we see at the intersection, like disinformation, sometimes planted, but often it's uh, you have motivated actors climbing onto an existing kind of narrative that starts to form almost like a storm system. Like the idea that the COVID-19 pandemic was masterminded by an international cabal or that vaccines are more dangerous than the disease. These kinds of things are sometimes kind of crowdsourced narratives that are then captured and used, uh, whether th th there's economic incentives for actors to do that or political incentives. Uh, also, yeah, maybe largely aiming towards that overall decline in trust uh, that could, that can come with uh, a lot of disinformation around fundamental and, uh, and important things. I mean, are we have we hit this perfect storm, right? I mean, it's not like disinformation and misinformation didn't exist, right? Um, I mean, we've been talking about it more in the last five years. Um, I mean, do you think that we this is this perfect storm of you know we have a decline in, in, in quality journalism? Um, and then we have a rise in ways that misinformation and, and disinformation can spread. I mean, online and you know, of course, via via social platforms. Um, and so I, I'm just curious, kind of Gabriel, kind of, kind of from from your perspective, especially you know, because you you watch the the media environment so closely. I mean, what have you what, what have you noticed around sort of the, this this decline in quality journalism? Maybe let's start there. I mean, it's been fairly precipitous. Um, if we can just start with local journalism for a second, um, I think it's important to note that you have these either news deserts where you have just an absence of local journalism altogether, or you have this heavy concentration of 
what is not, I, would, I don't think we could safely call organic local journalism as we have historically known it. Um, I grew up in a small town in Northern California. We had the Mendocino Beacon, um, which was around for, for centuries at this, at this point. And um, I would think that that would be a kind of thing that we would deem as like fairly organic local journalism with local journalists and a conventional editorial organization. Um, and what you have now uh, with Sinclair Media and like in the United States are these massive conglomerates, not really doing quality local journalism. Um, and so you either have this artificial local journalism, something that looks and feels like local journalism, but isn't, or just the complete absence of it, these news deserts. Um, and like, Arthur, you're talking about um, all of a sudden next door or, um, these, these kind of com community billboards serving the role of local journalism, that's not the same as a conventional news organization with a proper editorial structure. Um, and so there's that. Nationally, that's a whole other story. Um, and I think that what we're, what we're certainly seeing is with more and more um, jur journalism that is, is done with a political objective in mind, um, and is often unencumbered by truth and fact, you, you have the challenges of um, something that looks and feels like conventional news, but in, in fact is, is really just propaganda, but we can, we can get there. Right. So, I mean, to your point about, I mean, the fact that people, I mean, you know, where these news deserts have, have you know, emerged, that, you know, people are looking for ways to fill that gap, right? And, and, and that may be next door, right? Where people crowdsource, Hey, you know, is this is this? Here's my video. We, let's all find this person because this person stole my package or whatever, right? And 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 everyone, you know, feels armed with information. I mean, do you think that because I mean, there's probably a generation that didn't really hasn't grown up with with a really viable local news, like you know, publications, right? Can people? Do people, does the difference matter to people, I guess? I mean, obviously the impact matters, but I'm just wondering like as consumer, for, for consumers of information is scrolling next door or getting, you know, something like, you know, the Mendocino paper that you referenced. I mean, I just wonder like what, how much would they be able to tell the difference? And, and I mean, are we seeing a demand? Are we, are we seeing people going back and saying, hey, where, you know, I, I want something. I want editors and journalists of that information that before it's, before it's just thrown out um, to the masses. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm just curious if you're having conversations around things like that. Well, what I, there's maybe Gabe could speak more to this, like on the, from the economic side of things, when it comes to the trust from the consumer side, there is still, I think based on the engagement that we track, there's still a lot of interest in local news and at times of, high intensity and high uncertainty. You want to know more about this pandemic that's happening. You want to know how the election has been called. People understand and appreciate the value of media. And given the engagement rates with local media on social, and this doesn't turn into dollars a lot of the time for local media, unfortunately, but you do see um, that some of those stories even go national. There's something maybe about local media that it's seen as not politicized uh, in the same way as a lot of national media has, has kind of um, become in recent years. So I think there is a lot of trust there uh, based on the data um, that we're seeing. And, you know, the, the, those channels are still valued, but they're, are they valued enough for people to pay for them? And, uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't look like it right now. Yeah, the insidious trend in the United States is, um, and, and, you know, in addition to, to supporting 
nonprofit national organizations like ProPublica. Um, um, Emerson also supports um, the American Journalism Project and, and initiatives that really are focused on creating quality journalism from uh, a national down to a very local level. But, um, you know, the insidious trend is this kind of astroturf, inorganic representation of local journalism, something that looks and feels like it might be local journalism, but really is quite manufactured. Um, and so to your question, Arthi, I think, do people have an appetite for it? Do they miss it when it's gone? Yes. Do some of those, those um, inorganic initiatives fill that need? Yes. But is it providing an accurate assessment of what is actually happening on the ground? Does it fulfill the same purpose of holding local individuals and, and governments accountable um, and bearing proper witness? Those things that, that you need healthy, a healthy journalism body to do? No, it's not. And in that way, um, you know, do we miss that? Um, it, it's, it's, it is hard to say on an individual basis, but there's a tremendous amount of research that shows that we ultimately do miss it, whether it is studies that show that um, local governments that are, or in localities that, that do not have a strong local journalism presence, that um, their economies are not as strong. You'll have cases where it literally um, you will have the borrowing costs for those municipalities without strong lo lo uh, local journalism paying more for their debt. Um, so that obviously costs tax taxpayers. We've seen throughout the pandemic um, that there are, are lower public health outcomes, um, that there is greater divisiveness and political polarization where you don't have local journalism because people don't get to see those in their community as, as individuals. There are huge, huge collateral, there's significant collateral damage when it's not there, but it's very hard to answer that question of, well, do we properly miss it because of how insidious this change has been um, and, and what feels like what you used to have with proper conventional local journalism, but has transformed into something entirely different. Right, and it, it seems like it's fallen on, on individuals. I know, I mean, if you, like there are certain individuals who go to every, you know, at least here in, in Oakland, right, that go to the city, the city council meetings and they'll tweet and you just have to know the right, the people to follow, right? And Berkeley has the same thing where there are certain people that you just know to follow and they go. Some of them, some of them aren't even attached to, um, to news organizations and to your point about, you know, is there an agenda there? You know, like, I mean, that, that, you know, it calls into question a lot of that. Um, and you, you know, it's kind of on the individual to sort of research and figure out who this person is and why are they doing this? And um, yeah, so it seems- This, you know, yeah. this point, Arthi, I'm sorry to interrupt you, is, is so, is to me is so profound of like how much of the onus is on the individual. Yeah. yeah. Because, because of a lot of these contractions in journalism, it has put so much more responsibility on the individual, um, whether it is, um, just as you're saying, us being media literate um, and, and knowing whether that you're, you're dealing with a, a reliable outlet to consume your news. But, you know, the entire dynamic of sources, when we used to think of reliable sources, I think primarily we were thinking of them uh, in terms of a journalist determining whether the source they're, the, that they're using in their coverage is themselves reliable. Are they an honest broker? But now actually 
what you're seeing is this amazing inversion where if you are a reliable source, if you are an epidemiologist who is here during a pandemic, who's doing legitimate work, you now have a new responsibility to determine whether the outlet who's making a request to you is reliable. And you have to do so much more legwork to, to determine whether that outlet merits your expertise. And so at every level, whether you are an expert who's being asked to, to participate in media coverage or whether you're just an individual consumer, there is so much more pressure and responsibility on us because either we're going to be the victims of misinformation uh, or disinformation um, or, or the, the perpetuators of it, or as you're saying, at some point we become ourselves um, um, witnesses and, and fill that void to tell people, here's the ground truth in where, wherever you are. And so this, this entire, the balance of power and the responsibility that we have, I think, as individuals is greater than it's ever been. And, you know, Paul, I wanted to ask you about, you know, as, as you all monitor, you know, who's considered to be, you know, a reliable source. I mean, I mean, I mean, I think we've all developed a shorthand, like, for instance, on Twitter, like, is it a blue check mark, right? How many followers do they have? Are they followed by people that I trust? Okay, cool. Then I, then, you know, I mean, the shorthand of just kind of, you know, like almost peer reviewing, right? Like who, like who, who else in my network follows this person? If no one else does, then I don't know if I should be trusting them or if they only have 500 followers versus, you know, half a million or whatever. So Paul, like, you know, in terms of like how people decide who, who's reliable and who's credible, I don't know if you, if you have any, any insights from your platform. Oh, I mean, I think there's, the, the new information ecosystem is you know, it's kind of maybe a rewarding place to be a black belt in. If you're very good at personalizing your media input and you have time to spend in it, and you have a lot of contextual information, uh, you know, maybe a lot of contextual information about how the world works. If you've got less context, you're more prone to conspiracy theories or more prone to believing, you know, heavily politicized narratives about the world, then it's a very bad place because you can quickly get railroaded into a kind of narrative channel uh, and stay there. Uh, so that's that's a kind of a well-known issue. Um, I think what people trust, there's kind of two kinds of trust. It's what I trust to, as an outlet to associate myself with, and I generally agree with what they're saying, and this is who I trust to be telling me the truth. And I think a lot of the time people mix those two together and kind of find a bit of a tribe. And based on, you know, the last few months, the Daily Wire has been the most shared news publication in the US, I think, for every month of 2021 so far. Um, and I think that, you know, that shows, I suppose that's people who regard themselves in opposition and regard and want to identify with, pass on those stories. And, uh, you know, that's what people, a lot of people are, are trusting and wanting to pass on in social right now. Right. And it's unfortunate to see, you know, some, you know, the New York Times uh, shrinking down in terms of engagement there. Um, now, I think that there could be other dynamics at play. It's not a pandemic year people who are in opposition are maybe more likely to be, or view themselves as in opposition, more likely to be sharing more um, actively. But there's, yeah, it's, it's definitely a good place to be a black belt. And a lot of people aren't black belts and are getting uh, caught in kind of narrative traps. You know, we keep dancing around this idea of like reliable, right? What is reliable journalism? And, you know, traditionally reliable has been, um, you know, it's been objective journalism, right? And I, and I want to have a little bit of a conversation around this idea that, you know, of, of objective journalism, right? 
um, like, you know, who, who traditionally has decided what objective means and, and, and how, you know, subjective is that decision, right? Um, you know, we had, a, we had a panel last fall on this subject and, and, and whether, you know, objectivity is really at odds with diversity, right, in the newsroom, because traditionally, um, you know, th th this has been standards that have been set by, you know, older white men based on what their subjective judgment on objectivity is, right? And, and we have seen, and we've seen many examples of this recently of people of color, um, journalists of color being held to a higher standard around that. Um, we've seen that with, with women at, when they've written about, um, you know, sexual assault or they've, they've written about, you know, uh, the Me Too, Too movement. Um, we, you know, in, in a way that, you know, I'm just curious to hear from, you know, it's almost as though the standards of, of, of objectivity are now being, you know, applied to the individual journalists as opposed to the news product, right, <laughs> that they're putting out. So I, I'm curious to hear kind of your perspectives on objectivity and what that should mean or look like in today's world. To, to, to me, there's a, a few flavors of this because I actually don't think um, objectivity has to be the standard. So if you read The Economist, The Economist is very clear that it is not objective. It's very forthright about it, it, its uh, free market or libertarian approach um, to its coverage. Um, and you know that it is, it is fully disclosed and you know that when you're reading it. It is very different if you're turning on Fox News that's purporting to be fair and balanced, um, but is clearly not. Um, and so to me, a lot of it has to do with the, the um, appearance of objectivity versus the disclosure of an agenda. Disclosure of agenda has, has an important role um, in our society too, but it's, it's really that disclosure and transparency around it, I think is really key. But if you put that aside, um, you're absolutely right that there are numerous cases where you have traditional uh, uh, news organizations with proper editorial structure that have failed us in society. And um, if you look at that through a social justice lens, um, you know, the Equal Justice Initiative over the last year has, I think, done some extraordinary work around holding um, particularly uh, local or regional newspapers accountable or encouraging them to hold themselves accountable for their failings uh, around racial justice issues historically. And so um, I think it began with the Montgomery Advertiser. Um, after that, you had huge sections like in the Kansas City Star where they have said, we failed at this historically. Not only did we fail to cover this, in so doing, we became vessels and a vehicle for perpetuating this inequity and injustice. So I think that that reckoning is happening. Um, but that is still, I would still say, if you look at the Kansas City Star today or the advertiser today, um, which are set up in a way with some amount of checks and balances and rigor, those are set up to be more objective than your next door example, or then the single person on Twitter uh, who is attempting to, to do some sort of coverage. Their journalism, is there is a, a proper professionalism and practice to journalism, a study of it, 
in an attempt to bear witness. Um, and, and some people do that well, but I would just say lastly, I think when that fails, that's where I think the narrative around fake news um, and just tarring this entire category of when time and instances where journalists individually fail in, its, in their coverage and that's going to happen, that's very, very different from propaganda machines that are deliberately creating disinformation. Right. I, like, I'm, I'm, I think there's a, coming back to what do we mean when we talk about objectivity um, is a really interesting question. And I think the problem is objectivity might've been very loaded. Um, like you mentioned, you know, junior journalists going down and transcribing the police report, that's the objective account. And that's what the senior editor might've said, that's objectivity. But, you know, transcribing the police report from George Floyd's death would say that a man, you know, died of a heart condition or was it, you know, or that he died subsequent to arrest. That would have been a rather bland police report with barely merited um, any coverage, but because someone came by with one of these, they were able to blow that account open. And so I think objectivity, if that means relying on official traditional channels and the mayor said it, so it's important and we're not going to report what's happening on that side of town because it's not important. I think that's where a lot of objectivity um, isn't really objectivity, it's huge value selection being called uh, objectivity. And I'd say, you know, we can see more shifts in terms of what we think. Uh, how do we think we're being objective today, you know, with how the treatment of the huge incarcerated population in the US or animal rights might be another huge thing that could change in our lifetimes with our attitude to that. Like we may see a lot of things where well, we thought they were being objective in 2021, um, but there's, you know, in, in narrative selection, what we choose to cover and how we cover it, there's, there's these huge value judgments there. And I think those have been called out. And, are getting reevaluated, which is good. You know, that's that's an, another point about you know you raise about you know objectivity and, and you know how we've defined that and you know like we were saying it before this call that you know traditionally you would go in and you would get the police report and that was the official account. Um, of course, you know video has changed that dramatically, and not just when dealing with you know public officials, but also for brands, right? I mean, suddenly you know you you hear an anecdotal account that there was a skirmish on an airplane. And then you actually see the video of the woman, you know, woman getting her teeth knocked out or, you know, a flight attendant getting her teeth knocked out or a passenger getting punched in the face and getting dragged off the plane bleeding, right? Suddenly the brand can't just, you know, they, the, the kind of statement they have to put out changes a lot. And we saw this with COVID, right? We saw even like, I mean, we saw this on January 6th, right? We had recently had um, the CCO of Hyatt um, and she was saying that, you know, they had people wearing, you know, MAGA gear, not wearing masks inside their hotels. And suddenly Hyatt was in a position where they had to defend their policies. Um, we had the CCO of McDonald's saying that, you know, McDonald's is basically as big as Philadelphia. Every single day they have instances happen at their stores and they have video now, right? And so McDonald's has to constantly be reinforcing what their policies are because people are posting these videos everywhere. Um, so I'm curious, you know, how, you know, people having our, you know, having our devices and having our cameras, how that's changed what, you know, even those standards of, of, of objectivity and also, you know, how, you know, what we define as news and how that's changing, you know, what, you know, it's shaping the news agenda, right? Somebody posts a viral video and suddenly, you know, every reporter sees that and they're having to drop what they're doing and, and jump onto a story that they hadn't even planned on. I mean, I think that is what 
what is new in this landscape? And obviously we've been living in this mobile era for some time, um, but you know, tragically, there certainly were countless George Floyds, um, but not countless George Floyds who have been captured in such horrifying detail on a mobile device. To be able to counter that police account, which was clear, clearly, uh, deliberately obfuscating the truth, um, but the you know, so that is new, um, but I think it's important to know, note that this kind of um, conspiratorial or, or disinformation mindset at times is not new to our society in the United States. Like we have had a culture that has been chock full of that for, for some time, um, long predating the, the world of social media and mobile devices. And so uh, whether it was the Kennedy assassination or, um, you know, death panels, um, this is happening. Uh, or, or now if you fast forward to, to more modern times, you know, you had during Hurricane Sandy, these supposed on the ground accounts of this is underwater. And the beauty of social media is that you had people who were able to say, no, I'm standing on the corner of, um, Sixth Avenue and wherever in New York saying and saying, this is what this looks like here now, or later on, I am streaming live from this point and it is not underwater. So yes, social media has the ability to do that kind of fact checking to hold um, some sort of uh, disinformation or misinformation to account. But at the same time, it has to be said that it is, it is also a distribution channel and a, and a, quickening agent and amplifier for a lot of that misinformation. And we would certainly not be in the same place today were it not for social media's ability to both distribute that, but also connect like-minded people, people who are seeking out or with whom it, for whom it resonates that, that kind of misinformation. And that, that is, a, it's a, we're witnessing, it's a, an extremely volatile mix. So that that mix. So let, let's talk about that for a minute, and because we, you know, this sort of, you know, how social media has sort of created this 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 outgroup hate, right? I mean, it's it's brought people together to kind of ban, you know, against someone or against something, right? But it's also created these groups that have been able to have voices that have traditionally, to the point about objectivity, been marginalized by the you know mainstream traditional media sources, right? I mean, me, like, let's think about me too, right? I mean, how many women have come out against powerful men that have been marginalized, you know, it, 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 for, for really, I mean, as long as we can remember, right? I mean, it really wasn't until the Me Too movement and social media and a lot of women could come together and say, no, this is real, like this happens all the time. And that's what finally shifted that narrative, right? The same thing with Black Lives Matter. I mean. I mean, I, I was talking to someone who's a black woman who said she was never able to even utter the words white supremacy in her workplace until last summer, right? It was last summer when finally, I mean, really through the social platforms that these groups were able, you know, were able, they were able to come, come together and say enough is enough and we need to have some serious conversations. We need to unpack 
what white supremacy means in this country, white privilege. And suddenly, you know, you know, brands have the words white supremacy on their website, right? It's something that was unheard of prior to this. And Black Lives Matter, I mean, has been around since I think 2014, right? But it really wasn't until 2020 because we had this critical mass on social media, again, brought together because of that horrifying video um, of George Floyd's murder. But so it almost seems like, yeah, I mean, there, on one hand, this is a vehicle for misinformation. It is a, is a way for groups to kind of cause chaos and, and, and distrust. But there's also been these outcomes where people have been able that have never had a voice because of objective journalism are suddenly able to, to, to change that narrative. Mm -hmm. Like it's, you know, they are flip when you take away um, once you take away the gatekeepers, then I think that misstates it. Like it's just, it's a much more, um, you know, the ecosystem you know, within our platform, you log into news, it's like news, Twitter, Reddit, Facebook, public interest in stories, media interest. And it's kind of this, we're kind of removing some of the filters and kind of seeing it all as one continuous whole of ideas and information and narratives just moving around, influencing people. What's, you know, what's changing in the world today and what's changing people's minds today and uh you know the, the freedom that's there um I, I don't think it's been around since i don't think there's been a shift like this since the printing press and you know mass literacy following the printing press uh like the and the printing press i'm sure, I'm sure the, the 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 vatican would have regarded a lot of what was coming out of printing presses as misinformation um, and uh, it led to severe turmoil. Like, you know, I don't know what our modern Martin Luther might be, um, but you've got a, uh, you know, a very, a very different, um, you know, world that's, I, I think is, I hope it's a kind of peak chaos now when we start figuring out some of the guardrails because, you know, people still want trusted information and uh, there's, really inspiring ongoing work, you know, what Gabe is involved in and what people across the ecosystem are involved in in so many ways with just hacking away at this as the ecosystem evolves and trying to find terra firma and economic terra firma um, for, you know, uh, something, you know, the good sides of objectivity to, to have a role. So it's not just a lot of people shouting at each other, but it's, we're definitely, I, th I think if we stand back, we've got to acknowledge we're in the middle of a very chaotic, very big shift in, in human communication, relationships, and, and information flow. I think that's right. And, it, you know, the tantalizing part of the role that social media plays in all this is it is very easy to get caught up um, when you're looking at, say, QAnon here in the United States um, and see the obvious role that social media plays in helping people disseminate these conspiracy theories and, and come together in community um, and it's the, these sort of poster children of, of outgroup hate, outgroup hate. Um, but the problem is, and, and I reflect on this quite a bit from, from my time at Twitter, is I know at that time for, for us, it, the challenge was that for every one of those instances of outgroup hate, where it was very clear that there were these examples of um, the most sort of shrill and divisive voices being codified via social media. There were many, many examples of this kind of in-group love um, 
that was also coming out of it. And so it was either things like the ice bucket challenge where like how on earth could that have ever occurred were it not for social media? Um, or now you, you see, um, as you're saying, Arthi, the, the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter, um, people who have a real social justice and equity agenda who are able to realize it in ways that were historically impossible. So there is, there's obvious benefits there. And Paul, I think you're absolutely right. We're in this really chaotic time um, where I, I think it's unclear how this will sort, will sort out. But what is certainly clear, there will be the social media part of this that will resolve one way or another. Um, but none of that can take the place for the role that journalism plays. And it's also clear that part of what has exacerbated the problem with social media is that it's occurred at a time that's coincided with the time of, of really, really uh, dangerous contraction in certain parts of, of conventional journalism. Um, and so the foundation that that is built on is, is, uh, is become weak. And so we have to chip away at that problem too. So Gabriel, mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure if you, if this is something you can speak to, but I mean, are, are things like, you know, the Atlantic, um, you know, recognizing an editorial union. I mean, how does, does that give you hope around the future of quality journalism? Do we need more instances of things, you know, of, of things like that? I mean, look, the the Pulitzers will be announced tomorrow. Um, and um, I think that kind of quality journalism does not grow on trees. You will see people who are recognized and outlets that are recognized, um, the National Magazine Awards um, any, any minute now. Um, it takes a deliberate investment in those institutions. It's an input-output kind of equation. And so if you do not have support, if you do not have quality input, you will not have quality output. It's just, it, it is a very, very clear correlation. And, um, you know, we can talk about what the role should be, um, what that kind of, uh, uh, of construct should be, whether um, a more nonprofit model should work, um, whether you should have public company, th these um, journalism organizations as public companies, as private companies, what have you, but they just cannot be no companies. Um, and, and the disappearance of many, many quality organizations is, is really troubling. And so conversely, yeah, the presence of and continuation of very uh, important institutions like the Atlantic um, is critical. Uh, it, it, it is, um, I'm, I'm excited to see what, what awards will come and the recognition for that work. But obviously, I mean, it's what's more exciting is like, what's the next award-winning story? What's the next revelation? Who's the next journalist who's going to hold power to account? And, and that just, that happens because um, we as a society have determined that it's important to support that. To your point about quality, you know, input, it, it, it's directly related to output, right? I mean, one thing that I've seen hasn't changed is people's unwillingness to, and maybe you, you all have, have more insight and data around this, but the willingness for people to pay for, for this, for news, right? And, you know, they're, they're, it's still considered to be in poor form to, to share links that are behind a paywall. And I mean, every time somebody does that, 
you'll, you'll see, uh, you know, all of the complaints that I can't access it. It's, it's behind a paywall. So there is still this expectation that this information, despite the, the amount of work that goes in to producing high quality journalism, that it should be available almost as a public service. Um, I'm just curious if you all have seen, you know, a like I mean, what kind of response you get to paywalls, and and whether you're seeing any any models that that are working better than than paywalls. I, I'm very interested in Gabriel's comment here because I think the Atlantic's got a great partial paywall. Uh, it's you know, its stories get huge reach often and are very influential, and without. Um, I suppose just playing to a particular cohort or group. I think uh, the Atlantic's got stories that will challenge you, whatever your beliefs, which is brilliant. And you know, we we work a lot with the AP. Really admire the effort they put into being able to do their work kind of down the middle and annoy everyone sometimes. And I think the Atlantic does a great job of that. So I'm very interested in you know how that's you know how, how you're walking that line, Gabriel. You know. Um there's no one size fits all. And what I think is at least encouraging is we definitely see in our society um, more and more people who I think are shifting from that place of the presumption of, well, this should be free to understanding why in certain instances it isn't. Um, and that's kind of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy and behavior. The more people pay for it, the more other people will pay for it. Um, and um, you know, you see this, uh, uh, if, if someone's behave, just natural behavior at home is to pay for a subscription to Netflix or pay for a rental via Amazon prime, you're, you are creating a certain behavior, consumer behavior and practice that can be extended into all forms of, of media, whether journalism or entertainment. Um, and so, yeah, you know, you look at something like the Atlantic that I think has a, a, a model that, that is working for a lot of people. Um, you have other organizations like, you know, here in the Bay Area, you have the information, which is charging a, a fairly significant fee, is doing very high quality journalism. Um, and so there will be a lot of different models and look for some um, an ad supported model to make all of their content available for free may very well work. But I think the real, the key to it, Arthi, is that the, there absolutely is a, a, a psychological and mental shift, a behavioral shift where people are becoming more and more accustomed to paying for the, the quality that they're getting. And I think that has to, we, we have to view that positively. I mean, speaking of new models, right? I mean, I feel like we could have a whole other show on sort of the sub stacks, right? And, and what that means for the future of journalism. I mean, you have really great journalists that are spinning out on their own and creating, you know, email newsletter subscriptions, right? Um, you know, and, and, and we're seeing even, and I'm thinking also about like Punchbowl, right? I mean, Punchbowl, like they compete with CNN and, and you know, Politico with a staff of about, I think, it's like five or something. It's an incredibly small group, right? So, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, we also are seeing these like entrepreneurs that are trying out different models and wondering if they need a lot of some, you know, some of the overhead that um, kind of some of the more traditional news outlets have had. 
one last question then, and I know Gabriel, I know you weren't at the Atlantic during this time, but you know, to your point about, you know, what will be that next big story that will hold, um, you know, hold people in power accountable. And I'm curious as CCO, how are you preparing for that? Because I remember when Jeffrey Goldberg, you know, when that, the, the story came out, it was I think September of, of last year that, you know, that, that Trump had called Americans who died in war losers or, or suckers, I think was the headline. There was a lot of attacks against the Atlantic that came out on the back of that. And I'm wondering, you know, as a CCO, how do you, how are you bracing for that next story and bracing for um, the kind of attacks to your credibility that will come on the back of it? Well, it's important to note, just at least to clarify the dynamic with the Atlantic. So um, Emerson Collective, um, as you're saying er earlier, um, has this ownership stake in the Atlantic, but the editorial organization operates completely independently. Um, even literally such that um, we, we are not responsible for the communications about the Atlantic. Should they win tomorrow an award, we will applaud them. Um, but you know, as far as the actual editorial coverage goes, um, that is something that, that we just don't touch. Okay. Um, and so uh, we're observing we're observing those attacks um, like everyone else, um, and and that's how it should be. Um, we should it should be the case that you have a storied institution like the Atlantic that is supported um, and financed, but that they get to continue with their objective agenda agenda in that way. That there is objectivity independent of ownership. Um, and yeah, that's that is how it should be. But that said, just to go back to that to that example, Arthi, of of how under assault they came. You know, I, I don't think it is new, or I don't necessarily think it's a problem for for coverage to be challenged or sources to be questioned. But the challenge of the fake news narrative. Um, is, is really scary because what you, as I was saying earlier, what you have is if you are educating people to be dismissive, if you're educating people to question the most basic facts and you exist in a society that through our, our education from primary through edu university education, don't really have any sort of deliberate work around media literacy what you have is, uh, is even in the case of award-winning journalism can fall on deaf ears because we have trained uh, a certain segment of our society to just um, be just knee-jerk dismissive, which is very, very different than having a, a, an eye toward rigor and questioning um, and seeing, do, have, do all these facts line up? That's fine and important. But to have a world in which no one reads a story um, and are just told this is fake is a, is a really uh, fragile place. And that's the, the last four years that we're emerging from right now. And, and I think, Paul, what you were saying earlier, that this is a chaotic time and there are a lot of things in flux. That's certainly that, the backdrop, the specter of the last four years uh, and the assault on journalism is part of that backdrop. And I think that we're still kind of coming out of that today. Well, do you, do I mean, you I'm, I'm, I'm very good. Oh, I, well, oh, Sorry, I, well, 
Oh, no, go ahead, make your point and I'll ask my question. Yeah. I was, um, you know, I'm glad that we brought it back to communications and what people, you know, should be doing perhaps in this, this media environment. And one of the things that kind of risk framework that some of our customers like um, Samsung have now, that I think they're quite aware of the narratives and who is paying attention to them. Like you can see, you can kind of make some predictions about you know, the kinds of things that are likely to provoke a response, whether it's something out of the blue or something that, you know, you're going to be doing uh, or some, you know, some statement you're going to be making in the world. So I think there's a lot more awareness of narratives, even if you, they're wrong or you believe they're wrong about your industry or your brand, you need to be aware of them, uh, know where they're going to kick off and know at what thresholds you believe they're becoming important enough where you might want to respond. And this is where the kind of data and monitoring and things that, that, that we focus on come in. And I think as well in this ecosystem, because of the dissolution of a lot of the important channels, owned channels become more important too, being able to go out directly with your own statement. So, you know, on that note, so just for, you know, we're closing this on communications. I mean, it's your point about being able to predict where, you know, what, what that narrative will be that will take hold. Can we do that today, you know, with things like, you know, Q and this dark, dark web? I mean, do you think that Wayfair ever, like ever thought that they would be accused of like, you know, human sex trafficking? I mean, do you think their communications teams sat there and said, you know what, I think we need, like, I mean, you know, I think it was, was it PNG also, right? It was last year that they were um, accused of using um, prison labor, right? I mean, some of these stories are, they feel like they're coming out of left, field and and it feels like they're starting in these deep dark corners of the web that that just traditionally haven't been monitored because they weren't they didn't gain this this traction there's no way you would have usa today refuting a story about wayfair and human sex trafficking i can't even imagine that would have happened prior to last year right that 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 rumor would have gotten that much traction right that usa today would actually be have a headline that said fact check um so you know I, i'm just you know if you're if you're what would be your advice i guess to people that are sitting there and and they just have no idea where where that threat's coming from and where to even look you know i i, I would I, I give a shout out to um this um mit political science Professor Adam Berinsky, who's done just a tremendous amount of work around misinformation and disinformation um, and provides a lot of the very practical, tactical tools that a citizen should use when, when dealing in an environment of misinformation, um, how not to perpetuate. So there, I, I don't want to, to take these companies, let them off the hook. There's work that they have to do too. But I also think they're existing in an environment where this, our citizens are sometimes deliberately, sometimes inadvertently contributing to this misinformation. And um, if I could wave a magic wand um, and have a, a lot of, of investment in basic civics, um, part of that curriculum would be an understanding of the role that we all play um, to ensure that we're not perpetuating misinformation. So there's that. That said, Arti, I think the mistake that that companies frequently make um, to this point that 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 Professor Brinsky makes is um, the thing that you are not supposed to do um, when dealing with misinformation is to call it out and say this incorrect piece of this thing is wrong. 
um, because that in and of itself itself is is perpetuating it. So there are ways to um, basically uh, uh, nip that in the bud without giving it further life. Um, mm -hmm. And I think there's a nuance there of being able to set the record straight without perpetuating it. I think some companies in this time have done a good job of that. Um, and some companies have, have made that mistake of by trying to quash it, have actually um, given it greater momentum than it would have otherwise mm. had. Paul, I'm curious to hear your opinion on that. We, we, this is where we get a lot. Um, and like, what I'd say first of all is the way for the PG tips, those are very extreme and unusual examples. Some things have just emerged from the dark web but no fingerprints already on Twitter. Uh, or you know, with news articles being generated by extremist sites beforehand, that's that's very very unusual. So I think what uh, you know, and and that's got nothing to do with the brand or the industry, uh, is also kind of an unusual situation. So that's maybe not the war that brands should be preparing for. And also, when something does just emerge and it's just going to be in some fringe places, as Gabriel said, you should probably ignore it. Um, like we've. You know, we work with Marshall Manson of Brunswick Group, and they often they use the kind of forest fire framework. The fire is burning at a controlled burn over there, and that's okay. You just got to monitor that burn, perhaps, and see if it jumps into the next group or even into the mainstream. Um, and the, you know, there's definitely discretion is the better part of valor a lot of the time. With the job of communications executive is to look at the data, show and be able to show the data to executives and say, this story actually isn't going any, anywhere and this is okay. Or sometimes when there's a story that feels or looks like misinformation to, to, that's very unimportant, tell them actually this is something that is blowing up and is becoming a major story and you might want to uh, make a statement here. Even if the CEO might say, well, obviously no one could believe this about, about us, but if there's existing narratives about the industry, if people have low trust in the industry, like it's the energy industry and there's a lot of people out there who don't like it, um, even something from quite a fringe site that starts getting a lot of traction may warrant a response. And the data can be really, really helpful so you're not feeling your way in the dark there. Right, yeah, and, and, and you probably can't, I mean like, and while in that moment it may not be catching fire, that's not to say that it's going to go dormant and then 18 months from now there'll be another trigger, right? And we've seen that happen more and more, right? Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, for your a job like yours, Gabriel, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a, just a threat environment that, it, I mean, I know we've been saying this for a while, but I think it actually has accelerated to the point um, that there's just, there, it just feels like there's a lot of volatility um, in places that, like, like you were saying, Paul, I mean, like just places that, that things without fingerprints, right? Like, I mean, you just suddenly, you know, suddenly USA Today is writing a story that you're like, you know, about Wayfair with human sex trafficking in the same title. I'm in the same headline, um, you know, Roaring Kitty. I mean, there's just so many examples, right? I feel like just in the last year. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I, we should probably close now, but, um, but, you know, I feel like we, we covered a lot of ground here, right? We talked about media, we talked about the media environment, we talked about journalism, we talked about objectivity, and we kind of brought it back to brands and what all of this, this what this environment ultimately means if you're a brand operating, um, you know, with all of these forces at play. 
well, you know, I feel like there's a bunch of threads that we had that I felt like I could have ran in a different direction and we could have gone deeper. So, so maybe, maybe we need to have, maybe we need to have a conversation again at some point. Um, but thank you, Paul. And thank you, Gabriel, for, for joining today. Thank you so much for doing this. It was really lovely. It has been Gabriel. <laughs> yes. And, and we will be back um, soon with another episode of the Provoke Media podcast. been listening to the Provoke podcast brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialists marketeers. Support for this podcast comes from Notified, the integrated, intelligent and easy to use PR software. Get a free demo today at notified.com.